to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15, that's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Hello, I am Daria Brown, and this week we have Marianne Nugent. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Positive Development. She's the parent of a 23-year-old son who received DIR floor time in Chicago when he was three. And we have Dr. Joshua Fader, a returning guest. He is the Medical Director of Positive Development, a DIR expert training leader, and a child and family psychiatrist, among many other things, as we know from our past podcasts. Today, we're talking about a new company offering developmental therapies paid for by insurance, currently in Florida, New Jersey, and California, but coming to Illinois next. And we'll find out lots more when we get going. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much, Daria. It's always great to be back. Thank you, Daria, for having us. So Dr. Fader, what is Positive Development? So we have um, at Positive Development uh, pulled together our own version, if you will, of developmental relationship-based intervention. And so, you know, when I give these talks, people like to know who I am. And I've been on this program many, many times. I have a son and a dad while well, my dad passed away with ASD. That's probably my one of my better qualifications, but I've been in the field since the late 70s. I'm now editor-in-chief of the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report, where we just put out a uh, interview with uh, Michael Sambank on her seminal uh, study about effect size for uh, comparing or trying to compare, if you will, developmental relationship-based approaches, uh, naturalistic developmental behavioral approaches, which I also do research on. And um, I say trying because there wasn't enough good data to even find an effect size for the traditional applied behavioral analysis. It's an incredible um, study because it's really kind of showing the, um, the place in the field of developmental relationship-based approaches being um, quite legitimate evidence-based practice. And so our, our company is in some ways founded on this, uh, this newer research. Um, and Dr. Everybody... Fader, I'll just point listeners to the blog post associated with today's podcast. I'll put a link to the past podcast we did on a move towards developmental approaches where you discuss that in more detail if people are interested. Absolutely. And you know, pretty much everybody uh, watching this knows that there's been a huge growth in the prevalence of autism diagnosis in the past you know, 30, 40 years or so, right? I mean, we had a prevalence of one in 10,000 back in 1970. It was four in 10,000 when my son was diagnosed around 1992. Um, and now we've got numbers as high as what, what is it, one in 14 students in one of the school districts in New Jersey being uh, diagnosed? It's a lot of kids. Um, and the other piece is that the dominant model, the ABA model, um, the traditional ABA model, $17 billion industry, um, isn't able to meet the needs. A lot of people are on wait lists and um, families just languishing, um, not, not getting the care. Uh, it's hard to get a diagnosis, hard to get the, hard to get the treatment. Um, people kind of know this, right? That there's uh, some overlap between developmental and behavioral approaches. The behavioral approach has some more limited parent participation. It's very structured, uh, a lot of drills, things like that. Our developmental approaches, which we talk about all, all the time on your podcast, um, Daria, 
our uh, webcasts are very parent inclusive and very much uh, tied to social emotional um, uh, learning and that internal motivation that the child has, but both work on cognitive motor communication skills and, and both have uh, evidence. <laughs> um, the research, uh, again, as you know, and we talked about this a little bit um, when we talked about the research uh, before, uh, has uh, been booming uh, when uh, you talk about ABA, but unfortunately the quality of that has turned out to be not as uh, good as what we'd like, whereas the developmental approaches have had, you know, more and more different little kinds of models and more research on them, especially in the last decade, decade and a half, which have kind of led to this um, recognition by the American Academy of Pediatrics and by uh, New Jersey Health, who just put uh, floor time on Medicaid, um, by the country of Australia. Um, Autism Speaks has actually funded a lot of uh, our research in developmental models, even though their advocacy tends to uh, uh, lean heavily towards ABA. And, and of course, ASAN and ASAN um, worries about whether the outcomes in uh, the traditional approaches are, are relevant. They, we, you know, they worry that um, you're not really learning things that are gonna help you live in the world, whereas they have quite a bit of support for developmental approaches being um, more, um, uh, meeting the, the needs of people to live in the world happily and, and meaningfully. Um, when, when we think about um, our model, we think about the difference between a, a, an approach that looks at the surface behaviors like withdrawal and aggression and the fixations of perceptive thinking, rigidity, stereotype behaviors, which we of course look at in a developmental program, but we're also looking at all the stuff underneath, right? 90% of the iceberg is, is under the water. So all the learning and intellectual differences, the medical comorbidities, motor planning challenges, communication and speech uh, challenges, behavioral comorbidities underneath, um, and uh, depression, anxiety, things like that. Emotional self-regulation, probably one of the most key things that we talk about and sensory differences that, that lead to some of those behaviors above. So we kind of encompass the whole, the whole picture. And so when you look at some of the typical kinds of things that are occurring in uh, you know, uh, autistic people, um, like with stimming, um, for us, that's an opportunity to join someone in their stimming to think about what it means for the person in terms of their own regulation. It's not something we're trying to merely suppress, right? Which you might do in a behavioral program. When someone has that singular focus, they love their triceratops. That's me, by the way, I love triceratops. Um, uh, you, you use that as an engine for creating more as opposed to, for instance, something you allow the child do, to do between uh, tasks, something like that. When someone is you know, very different uh, than the crowd, I think actually there would be uh, in some ways some overlap, but just a different way of handling. How do you help someone to become part of the crowd? Um, do you give them discrete uh, things to try, like asking people, what's your favorite color? Um, that might or might not go over depending on the crowd you're with. Or do you try to figure out the commonalities with the other people or find a group that has commonalities and bring them together in a way that you can facilitate interaction? And finally, and probably again, at the core of it all, a lot of that dysregulation, um, how do we manage it? Do we um, ignore it so that it goes away? Um, or do we lean in and join enough to help someone co-regulate and help them to 
um, feel better in the context of their relationship with the people around them and to become more connected and therefore uh, more resilient as opposed to suppressing um, their, um, their experience and, uh, and sort of numbing them, which is kind of what the ignoring does. So, you know, um, uh, these are our cartoons of ABA versus a developmental approach. They look very, very different. And by the way, as a reminder, I trained in discrete trial ABA early in my career and I practiced it as a teacher for autistic adults at one point in my life as well. So it's not like I haven't been there and done that, but really it was the, uh, for our company and, and for my own kid, um, it was taking what he was interested in and building on it um, in ways that, that expand one's world and ideas. And if you wanna learn prepositions, you can sure do it with dinosaurs under couches and above them and things like that, as opposed to, you know, put in, put under uh, on a desk, which had often has no meaning to the person. I know so many people who can point to the correct color, but really don't understand the, the, the beauty of colors very well. Um, or they do, but nobody is paying attention to that. So our model, uh, a simplified uh, developmental model, is a weight, join, build model. Really, this is kind of what we want our, our parents to learn and our uh, paraprofessionals who extend the parents to do, which is really to observe and you know see what the child's doing, to find ways to gently join in and uh, be part of that world, and then to build on those ideas uh, so that you get uh, more and more together. You're building on them together and co-creating um, uh, learning and communicating and, and social problem solving. So whether you're doing something fun like playing dinosaurs or whether you're uh, trying to bake cookies or whether you're managing a tantrum because somebody's upset, um, this same kind of approach is uh, how, we, how we do it. Um, and it might even be something as simple as you know, a child who might just be pawing the carpet, that's kind of a classic Greenspan thing. And you're, you're, you know, gently getting in the way of that and turning it into a recognition that you're part of that, that person's world. You see the child kind of looks up at the end. That's kind of your signal in a circle of interaction that something's happened. So the child's doing something, you do something, and they do something that indicates that they get it that you're there and you build on that many, many, many different kinds of circles of interaction, creating those interactions. And that can happen also obviously with people who are um, using words and, and uh, more uh, uh, able uh, to work with ideas with you. So here, you know, kids talking about their favorite kind of uh, airplane, I start talking about helicopters. It doesn't go over at all. Um, kids still talking about their favorite kind of airplane, but then I figure out, okay, well, maybe I can talk about the vertical takeoff planes that have helicopter with it. And then we can start talking about that. So we're, I'm, I'm figuring out how to have a conversation that um, enriches our world together um, that includes his you know, transport and includes other kinds as well. And we, we just build that bigger world of understanding and problem solving together. Um, when we think about this model, um, we think about these different functional, emotional, developmental capacities or levels. And um, these are sort of um, uh, words that connote those different levels going from just being calm enough to be able to participate in an interaction and then turning on the switch, that connection, that emotional moment where you know that you're connected with somebody and then just starting to respond. I like to think of it as tuning the instrument there a little bit and then really a big uh, uh, moment 
is when you expand into a flow of interaction where you can be doing things, whether it's, you know, making those cookies or playing dinosaurs or um, uh, whatever it is um, in the moment. Beyond that is then a new a realm, a new dimension of thinking where you can think about what happened in the past, what happens in the future, and use symbolic thinking to pretend and think about those things, um, which is great for problem solving because you're not stuck in the moment. If you have a problem like, I don't know, you really hate doing homework, you can think about homework you know, later, maybe what we want to try differently, that's symbolic thinking and actually moving on to what you're going to do about it. What makes sense to do about it is when you're bridging ideas together in a logical fashion so that you can problem solve. You, you can think about homework and think about how you're going to get a magic wand to make it all go away at level five. At level six, you're thinking about, okay, we're going to break it down into smaller pieces so we don't have to do it all at once. Um, and then seven and above, there's 16 different levels in this uh, model. Um, and we, we think about uh, a, a whole bunch of them, but uh, level seven and up is when you're able to really think about um, your own thought in a way that helps you to reflect and, and move forward. For instance, um, uh, multi-causal thinking, there's more than one reason why um, you, know, you might be worried about something um, or nuanced emotional thinking where you might be better able to order things of how much you like or dislike something or um, uh, th you know, that kind of hierarchy and, and many others. So we're thinking about all these levels that occur in most of our conversations, depending on the age and capacity of the child and moving up uh, calm, connected and in a flow is really kind of what I'm thinking about most of the time and then beyond that. Um, and there's a number of, um, you know, researched evidence-based models, the merit studies in York University, of course, the play project with uh, Rick Solomon and his people and Project Impact, which I, is where a lot of my research is, uh, which is actually a developmental, uh, I'm sorry, naturalistic developmental um, behavioral approach, all focusing on very similar things, emotional regulation, sensory motor function, shared attention, attention social engagement, this purposeful communication, like it's meaningful. Um, the intentionality of people, what, you know, really trying to help understand what um, the other person wants or needs or their ideas, and that social reciprocity and problem solving. And of course, the representational and symbolic play. And, and, and again, when we talk about play, um, it goes all the way from, you know, playing with toys or whatever to playing with ideas when you're well, let's say an engineer. And then the outcomes, again, similarly, we're trying to improve social communication and, um, you know, meaningful um, sensory motor function. And of course, quality of life for um, our, our kids and our families and engagement with the community in the educational system. I mean, we want outcomes where people are connecting with their communities and um, don't need us as much while, while reducing some of those challenging core symptoms and reducing family anxiety and stress and reducing dependence on service, right? Our job is to make ourselves more obsolete, connect people to their communities when we can. Oh, where did my slide go? Um, and just some of the research very quickly. I know we went over some of this before, but Play Project, uh, Rick Solomon's um, uh, model was uh, uh, probably one of the best uh, sets of studies that are out there on developmental relationship-based interventions. And by the way, that seminal study that you know everybody talks about um, was done, and this is kind of important because it speaks to that whole research problem we've talked about before, 
the data was collected and analyzed independently of Rick. He didn't, he didn't do it. Um, Michigan State did it. In, in, in healthcare, and you're probably reading about this if you look at um, some of these blogs like um, Retraction Watch, where they talk about all the retracted studies, it's really hard to trust healthcare information because when people study their own stuff, it's always biased. And that was one of the problems with a lot of the traditional ABA literature. Um, there's other problems too. But, um, but here you've got this you know, brilliant study showing that um, uh, you know, people uh, doing so much better, the parents are less depressed. I think it's probably better just to look at this comparison. On then ADOS, the improvement on two categories of ADOS, like going from, um, from severe all the way through moderate to mild, uh, or from moderate through mild to can't diagnose on an ADOS, 17.5%. Holy cow. And by one category, 36%, um, which is also impressive. But, you know, you all, I always wonder, is it just, did they just get over the line? Um, but those lines are, are bright lines. It's not like the researchers created the line from severe to moderate. Um, these are, you know, outside independent people, uh, the ADOS people creating those categories. It's, it's very, very impressive. You've got a lot of people who did a lot better with a year of play project. Versus, you know, that TRICARE study, which is really kind of telling when the government studies a whole year's worth of data in 2017, um, you know, uh, people who got discrete trial and 85% either didn't get better or got worse. Um, you know, it makes you think there's room for another approach. Um, so, so what is our model? What does it look like? Um, ABA models, you know, this is sort of gets into the money and stuff. Maybe Marianne will talk a little bit about it. But you've got that kind of limited parent participation, whereas we're more parent inclusive. Um, it's a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and it's a modern clinical model. We're outcomes focused. We're taking data so we can report out like the TRICARE people, but we're expecting our numbers are going to look better because our kids are actually doing quite well. And, uh, you know, in terms of the financing and insurance companies, which is a big deal, who's going to pay for it and how they're going to pay for it. Um, it's, it's actually um, uh, less expensive. But, um, you know, in terms of what we're, you know, measuring, you know, we've got our own functional, emotional, developmental um, levels, right? So whether it's the FEAS or we might use the Greenspan social emotional growth chart for some kids, that measures our internal stuff like our model. But what people want to know is, so in the broader measures of autism, are kids doing better? So we're looking at cars, which is it's kind of like ADOS, but it's you can do it over the internet when there's like a pandemic. Vineland, um, which um, talks about broader categories of function, including communication and motor function and activities of daily living, um, social function. So it's a really nice, and a lot of people use it to, to look at that. Insurance companies like to see that. Parent stress, <laughs> we want to know how parents are doing. Um, and of course, uh, we look at uh, service costs and dependency over time. What's, what's it going to cost the system to do this? And what we're finding is conservative estimates are that we're about 15% uh, less uh, cost uh, per year per child for um, our model and our services. And that's partly because we're training parents so that during the day when you will be with your child anyway, you're going to be doing things that are developmentally supportive. And whereas with a traditional ABA model, you have a lot of paraprofessional uh, technicians who are doing drills and things with your child. We have fewer of those hours. We don't need them as much. Um, 
and um, uh, and those are also developmentally supportive. So it's not like drills; it's more the play-based relationship-based approaches with um, with speech and occupational therapy. Not not dissimilar in in amount uh, to an ABA program, but probably um, more or certainly more developmentally pitched. Um, and and uh, probably more emphasis on mental health input as well. Um, so that's that's kind of how that looks in terms of lining it up in terms of costs for insurance companies because you know they're looking at this and saying, well, you know what, maybe we can save money and the kids will do better and the families will be happier. That's that's our model. So you've got you know a mental health person, maybe a psychologist, maybe a master's level clinician, occupational therapist, consulting, speech therapist, uh, consulting. Um, we have parent education uh, and our paraprofessional developmental client coaches. And probably one of the better things is a care coordinator. How many times as a parent, we're all parents here. How many times have you tried to like get out all these balls in the air, figured out like, where are you going to do this and that? Where our, our goal is to, to take that out of the hands of the parent in a good way and have somebody kind of working for you to get everything scheduled so that you don't have to be doing all the calls to coordinate everything. Um, so that, that as well is something that, that is part of our, our model. So that, that's kind of the model. Maybe Marianne, you have some comments before uh, we talk about other aspects of this. One of the things that I'm so excited about in the way we deliver our services is that we do provide that care coordinator. It's, it's, a, it's an integrative approach and even something as simple as getting your speech pathologist and your occupational therapist in the same room or on the phone at the same time to talk about school placement this fall and what we're focusing on, et cetera, is a Herculean task often, especially if they're at different clinics. And even if they're in the same clinic, our teams treat the family as a team. So there is one integrated and um, unified assessment and evaluation document that has program goals and treatment plans and treatment notes, et cetera. And then the individual discipline goals are in that same document beneath the developmental goals. So it truly is an integrative approach. And that right there just makes the burden less difficult uh, for families. So just to follow on that last point, I think that's really, really important and it's different and it's valuable to the family. And the other piece is the parent stress index. I loved in Dr. Solomon's study that he took that into consideration because I remember how stressful, um, how stressed I was when my son was diagnosed and just the years of hours and hours of treatment and uh, trying to advocate for him in the school and managing him, his little sister had colic and he used to just get so dysregulated, poor thing when she was crying all the time. That was tough. It was really, really stressful. And I think measuring our success as a therapeutic organization, treating the whole family is very, very important. And parental stress is a huge aspect of that because if mom and dad aren't regulated and they aren't content and they aren't available to their child, the child will not make as much progress or as he or she deserves to make. Yeah, the research is there. When parents do better, kids do better. No question. You know, the other thing is we're um, we're a startup, right? But we're we're kind of already kind of big and growing, right? We're in California in two different places. We're in the LA basin, I guess. Uh, Monrovia is the base there, and San Diego, where we're growing um, rapidly, and then also in Florida and New Jersey um, with um, plans to move into other states. 
And um, in working with insurance companies, one of our big hopes is, you know how like uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, we're trying to make the, um, the environment, the context, the ecosystem friendlier for everybody in the DIR world to be able to get insurance reimbursement for developmental work. We're not going to see every kid. Um, we're going we're gonna to make, uh, we're going to make the culture. We're going to change the culture of autism treatment in the U.S. and, and beyond um, to uh, bring in uh, evidence-based uh, developmental approaches that I think are much more humane. And the other thing is that it's so much more equitable. Um, when I was doing floor time for my kid, you know, 30 years ago, it's like out of pocket and insurance, even TRICARE at the time didn't pay anything. I had to, you know, moonlight in my Navy job, outside of my Navy job to, to pay for this stuff. Well, we're getting insurance to cover it. We're getting Medicaid to cover it. We're going to get for other people's kids um, covered by insurance you know, what our kids had, because I was lucky enough to be a doctor and to be able to moonlight to pay for it. Um, I want this for everyone. And it really addresses some of the disparities, the equity problems. So to me, this is a passion project. You know, look, my kid's grown. He's an engineer, you know, <laughs> great guy, a little quirky, but, you know, great guy, whatever, you know, I, but I'm not like going to sit back. I want to see everybody get uh, these opportunities. I'm, I'm committed to that. And to be fair, Josh, people have described you as quirky, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could get into that someday. We all um, have our, our, our things. I remember trying to explain to my father, uh, my son was the seventh grandchild born and trying to explain to him what sensory integration was and regulation was. And um, he just he just wasn't quite getting it. And so I reached over and I touched the back of his neck and he swatted my hand away. And I said, that is an example of a sensory input that for a lot of people wouldn't even phase them, but for your brain, it sets you off. Now imagine you had 20 of those things coming at you all the time. And his eyes lit up and said, okay, now I get it. Excellent. And I, I just wanted to go back to a point that uh, Dr. Fader was making. So this isn't like an alternative to floor time or other things. This is more a coordinated effort to get people to have access to floor time, other similar type developmental approaches. And like you said, make it more equitable by getting insurance coverage, which is astounding to me that here in Ontario, Canada, we're still funding ABA and pretty much only ABA, some occupational therapy, some speech um, and language, but uh, a lot of that is still behavioral speech and language or behavioral occupational therapy, like put this block in this hole, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, is not sensory integration based at all. So, you know, it completely defies the, the, the definition of a spectrum. If a spectrum is, if it is truly a spectrum, we are accepting the fact that there is a wide variety of children and needs and support levels, but yet insurance is telling us only one intervention works. Yet they're saying, um, they're saying it's now needs-based here in Ontario, and it is needs-based, but it's still ignoring that I, that individual differences in terms of the actual um, process. So, you know, yes, it's family centered and the family chooses, but the choice isn't there. Right. <laughs> what is the family's choice? This right. or this, which are behavioral. So I'm hoping that this 
uh, wave of positive development across the United States will branch into Canada. So the more success you guys have, the more we'll get here as well. We'd love it. We do continue to do uh, uh, on the side, you know, a lot of my work is in uh, policy advocacy. We've got actually a, a law going to the governor's desk. 99% sure it's going to hit the governor's desk in the next month or two. And we're right now doing a letter writing campaign. If you're on, I think you're on those same email lists. Um, I will put a sorry. link to it in the blog post. And, yeah, and, and, and actually any letter works. So. Is it only for people that live in California? No, it's for everybody. It's for everybody. So everybody should write a letter. Um, in California, it does make, you know, more of a difference, but but it helps that the, the country is watching and the governor is up for recall. So hopefully it'll help him, you know, <laughs> he doesn't want to anger a whole bunch of parents of autistic kids in California and around the country and even Canada. Um, but, um, but we've also heard uh, about some of the advocacy efforts um, and we're participating ones nationwide, but, but in Canada as well, I had thought that there was a recent ruling in one of the uh, provinces that was a little bit more um, uh, progressive in terms of developmental approaches. Am I wrong? Do you know about that? Well in Ontario now, um, they are using Play Project as an uh, apparent mediated um, early coaching model. That's so it's for children that are young, and it's um, it's still limited. It, the The majority of services for children who are school age is still ABA, and even if there are other things offered, it still says behavioral, behavioral applied behavioral analysis everywhere. And the, the um, knowledge isn't out there enough for families who are new to it, although it's growing. And hopefully my podcast is having some effect on that. People are saying, well, what about floor time? It, but it, it's still very behavioral here um, in this province, unfortunately. But again, moving towards developmental approaches. And the government has uh, acknowledged you know, some of these more naturalistic behavioral interventions, but they're still behavioral interventions. So, um, of course, I'm at the extreme of that developmental client based, you know, I, I'd like to see that being equally valid uh, choice for parents. Yeah, that's the language that we're trying to get into the law more explicitly in California. And we're looking at a, um, a national process to do that in the states as well. And, you know, I, I got to hand it to uh, ICTL and Perfectum. ICTL has housed the national effort or and the California effort for a number of years in terms of helping us to be legitimately lobbying, right? And then Perfectum has been gracious in contributing uh, funds as well to that effort. You, you can imagine there are millions of dollars that are devoted to protecting the uh, process of going state by state by the traditional ABA uh, organizations to make it the only thing that anybody can get. Um, and we have, you know, if we're lucky, we can raise 50 grand um, for the fight in, uh, you know, in our advocacy efforts, by the way, and we have a national fundraiser on August 7th, um, that me and my brother Dave is going to come back again this year. And, uh, and Andrea Davis, the president of the DR floor time coalition of California, we're going to run and Rick Solomon of the play project. And I talk about research and, um, Diane Cullinane talks about what is developmental relationship based intervention. I think we're going to have like a backyard birding lesson from an autistic individual, um, and, and other things. Um, so, uh, I encourage people to go and enjoy and also to contribute to advocacy because 
if we don't get policy change, it makes it a lot harder for us to, to do some of this. Um, it, you, we need the D word explicitly stated because only the B word is there. And therefore, a lot of times insurers are like, well, you know, we only have to do behavioral. So right. we'll do applied behavioral analysis. And then getting to your other point about on what we're doing versus what other people are doing. I see this as an ecosystem. What we're doing and what we're developing at Positive Development is a form of developmental relationship-based intervention. It learns from Play Project because some of our people have been trained at our Play Project people. It learns from Perfectum and ICDL because we have faculty from both of those, like senior faculty, me, Beth Austin, Marilee Bergeson, you know, others. Uh, who are who are faculty with both those organizations? We look to those organizations to um, to have other versions or their versions of uh, developmental approaches and green in the UK because you need to have a rich. Uh, grouping of these things. And what do we do? We try to put it together in a way that can be operationalized, it can be brought and scaled up. And then we're studying it, we're doing the research. We learn from Rick Solomon, what is a fidelity study? And I, I think we've talked about this before, but if you've got a model and like you're teaching parents and maybe teaching your paraprofessionals, well, how do you know it actually works, right? You have to kind of check that the parents and the other professionals learn the stuff. You have to check that they're doing the things, right? And you have to kind of compare it to other people who aren't getting that. And so all those different pieces have to be in place. And we're looking at how do you do that? And, and I already talked about the outcomes that, that we're looking at to try to, to show that. But if you don't have that rich grouping of uh, different, slightly different models where you're learning, even from RDI, we learned some things. We'd love to see more research from them. Um, then your model gets stagnant and, and it doesn't grow and develop. So we're, we're all for all the organizations rising together, even though what we do will we'll look a little bit different um, and we'll learn, we'll learn together. And I love how we're hearing the voices of so many diverse groups of people from the pandemic that are all parts of society, but have been ignored and silenced for so many years. And that includes autistic self-advocates who have been through ABA and it'll be wonderful to see a new generation of children who have been through developmental, play-based, client-centered, um, sharing joyful interactions with their parents together, uh, not being punished for things they're unable to do, uh, having that support that they require and in a loving way. And it'll be fabulous to see that generation uh, come in the next decade or two, and what a difference that'll be for autistics in society. Very much so. You know, the funny thing is, my son uh, was at a uh, conference on the stage. He doesn't do this anymore. He doesn't want to. But um, we were uh, at a, a DIR Floor Time Coalition conference, must have been a decade ago. And um, uh, Diane Cullinane was interviewing him in front of me and my wife. And he asked, uh, she asked him, so what do you guys do for fun? You know, asking Fader and family, you know, what do you guys do? And my son says, well, we watch stand-up comedy on TV. And, you know, it's like TV, TV family. We just watch TV. And, and she asked, so do you remember anything about your early floor time? And he's like, nah. And, and so it's kind of the difference between the self-advocates who, you know, they're saying, we didn't like what we had, you know, when they had these more traditional approaches. 
And then people who had kind of a fun experience. I, uh, we're, we've been working with a self-advocate, uh, Haley Moss out of Florida, who's an attorney. She's fabulous. She's done some um, podcasts, webinars for us rather. And uh, Stacy, our, our marketing director who was interviewing her, asked her that very question. She said, well, what did you remember? What, what was it like when people came over to your house to play with you? And she said, well, I was an only child. It, it was great. People walked through the door with toys and wanted to sit down on the floor and pay attention to me. I thought it was amazing. So the furthest thing from a traumatic experience, I think. The whole, um, I guess, summary of, of what I read from self-advocates is like, hello, we're people too. Like treat us like people, don't treat us like specimens that need to be, you know, um, trained or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's that line between, um, well, there's all these factors. There's the parents and, and it's society because society says, oh my goodness, you have a special needs child. Oh my goodness, autism, <gasps> like it's so tragic. And the parents are stunned. And I try to be the bridge between the parent experience and having a good experience for your children because I, I can understand uh, where the self-advocates are coming from too. And I relate to so many of the things that they say, although I was not raised as an autistic, um, I certainly feel like I have a lot of those similar traits and felt a little bit different from peers, but my son full on has the experience of, of what so many autistic children go through, even in a loving, caring home with DIR floor time, he still gets overwhelmed and, you know, he will not let us trim his toenails. I just tweeted out this morning, uh, any actually autistic people, please have any tips for how I can clip these toenails. They're getting so long and he's terrified and, and things that, um, you know, other kids will sort of go through, our kids really struggle with, and that's where the support is required. And so uh, just helping parents understand that, you know, there's a better way to do this. There's a way to make harmony with everything. Yes, we need to have patience and support the disability that exists, but these are people who are gonna be part of our society and we wanna treat them as such. So I think we're definitely moving in the right direction and um, it's great to have all the voices out there guiding our way for sure. So I'm definitely interested in meeting this Haley. She's fabulous. You know I know from toenails, when I was a medical student, one of my jobs was to help people who hadn't done their toenails in you know, a long time. And as you know, that can become very problematic. No, these are the realities of yeah. our families where you've got these things that are really hard to address. And um, how, do you, how do you figure out a way to help them? Uh, the, the health, the general health of uh, our uh, family members is less because um, because it's harder for them to access care and, and advocate for themselves because they have things like this happening and, and it's hard to know how to help them. And, and they confess you could get an infection, God forbid. Just say as a parent, it gets better. It does. You will look back on this 10 years from now and think, oh, remember when I was struggling with that? And now it's not an issue. Yeah, and I hear from parents that it wasn't an issue when they were younger and then it becomes an issue, but then and you know, back and forth and and just trying to get him vaccinated for COVID. Oh, he's now has both shots, but he screamed so loud and put up such a fuss and we felt horrible for like you know having to hold him down, but I gave him a big hug and we talked about it all in advance and 
planned how he gets to pick out his favorite toy, which I hate to use like a reward type thing, but I want to say like, I know this is hard for you. We're going to have so much fun afterwards. We just have to do this kind of thing and giving him that hug and say now <laughs> or getting it in there. Right. <laughs> but the second one was even harder and I thought it would be easier. And so, you know, it, it things like that, that you just sort of have to get done. That can be so challenging. Um, but that being said, there's a million wonderful positive things too. It, this is fabulous, uh, Dr. Fader, that you guys are doing this. I, I hope it takes off like it has started to. And um, Marianne, it, uh, you being a parent and having gone through this too, you, you know what other parents are going through. So providing that um, experience for parents where, you know, parents come in from all different areas, right? Like some right. think their kids have to be corrected. Some are overwhelmingly loving and and you know some um, are just focused on different aspects of their child's development i would say yes yes so having that person who coordinates all the care is just such an amazing uh bit of stress lifted from the parents as well so fabulous can stuff a, can i add another thought well two things one is i i give yourself some space to give a reward every once in a while. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I think that's okay, right? He gets anything he wants all the time because, you know, when he was young and he had brain inflammation, he was in the hospital, we thought we didn't know if we were going to lose him or not. So I said every day with this little guy is the best day of my life. So unfortunately, maybe I've spoiled him too much because <laughs> I do everything that he wants. <laughs> ben, ben Franklin said you can't spoil a child with too much attention or love. Um, <laughs> But well, I want to pick up on something that you alluded to a little bit earlier, which is sort of like the, the sad feelings that some people get when they get a diagnosis. And I don't know how many months it's been since we've spoken. And I know we did a piece, which a lot of people have seen, by the way, they come back to me and say, Dr. Fader, I saw you on affect autism about whatever we were talking about accepting reality. Um, yes. And um, but the acceptance uh, concept uh, went into play with autism, the the um, Autism Society of America in the U.S. this year, where they used the term Autism Acceptance Month, not Autism Awareness Month. And I just want to put a, you know, a bright line under that because it really fits with what we're talking about, with what our developmental approaches are all about, which is acceptance, which means when I meet a child on the spectrum, I want to know what the world looks like through that child's eyes. I don't want to change that child. I want to learn from that child, which is entirely different from the awareness model, right? Where you're, you know, hanging black crepe because you've got a diagnosis and I get it. I mean, kids are having real challenges and it hurts for them. It hurts for families. Um, but when we use the awareness model where we're saying how awful it is and how it's a disorder, that's the kind of thing that from the ASAN point of view, if you ever read and straight on till morning, it's a very harrowing book about, you know, the parents, we have one in San Diego. It actually sparked our research here in San Diego on a parent um, killing their child. And it's an awareness model that allows for the thinking that uh, says, this is so bad. We understand you did something about that. That's not a good thing to do about it. But an acceptance model is, Let's embrace everybody. Let's learn from everybody. You know, anybody you meet, you learn from. That's a Talmudic thing, actually. Um, and and let's work together to build a world that's for everybody. Um, and that's really that's really what we are about in our developmental models and at positive development. Excellent. Okay. 
Well said, Josh. Thank you both for being here. I will put links to different things that we've talked about on the podcast at the blog post at affectautism.com. Just search for positive development. Thank you again, Marianne Nugent, Dr. Joshua Fader, and hope to see you again in a year or so where you'll tell us about all the other places positive development is covered. Thanks for having us. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. This episode of Affect Autism was brought to you by affectautism.com. This is an independent endeavor on my part without any sponsorship. Please consider supporting the podcast and the website for as little as $5 US a month to receive extra bonuses, including floor time videos access, your questions answered on upcoming podcasts, my weekly insights video with my takeaways from each podcast, and more. You can become a member or a star member of Affect Autism at patreon.com slash affectautism.